Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In today's special episode, we sat down with Bruce Jones, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and author of To Rule the Waves, How Control of the World's Oceans Shapes the Fate of Superpowers. He sheds light on how in history naval power translated over to world power, how that's playing out now between the U.S. and China, and how the cold reaches of the Arctic are becoming the next geopolitical flashpoint. Let's dive in. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. And so I want to begin with your book, actually. You wrote one recently called To Rule the Waves, How Controlled the World's Ocean Shapes the Fate of the Superpowers. So tell us about that. What does naval power have to do with really like world power? Well, it's very striking when you look back at the history of empires in the modern period. And what you see is that for most of the last several hundred years, the state or empire or nation that was able to uh, most successfully dominate world affairs was the state or nation or empire that had the largest and most effective navy in the world. Um, for a brief period, that was the Portuguese. Uh, for a long period, it was the British. Over the last hundred years or so, it's been the United States. And it matters because so much of world trade uh, moves by the oceans. So much of how we live our lives is shaped by commerce across and uh, underneath the oceans. Um, just think about digital communications, which is central to everything we do now, modern finance, modern social media, everything else. 93% of all data in the world moves on undersea cables. About 85% of world trade moves by ocean going container ship and bulk carrier. So if you can dominate uh, the world's oceans, it really gives you an extraordinary influence on global affairs. Um, the United States has had that for the last 100 years or so, uh, the British before. Uh, and now, of course, China is competing to gain those advantages. It's built up an extraordinarily important role in uh, ocean-going commerce and trade. Uh, but it's also now building uh, its navy faster than any country has done since the United States did it during after Pearl Harbor. Uh, a huge expansion of Chinese naval power and the beginnings of a, uh, a network of bases and et cetera that would give it global reach. So this is, I, I think, central to the dynamics of competition between the United States and China in the contemporary period. And Bruce, so speaking of that kind of sea presence and naval power, it seems right now, especially in headlines a lot, is the South China Sea, right? I think you mentioned in your book, too, there's a lot of attention there, but less attention is on the colder water, say the Atlantic. And a big part is the Arctic. And it's interesting because it shows up in the beginning of the book and then like again at the end. So why is the Arctic so important? It seems there's more than just polar bears there. Why are all these world powers looking at it? Yeah, it's become, I think, one of the hottest zones of competition there is. Uh, the, the biggest issue is that climate change is rapidly changing the ability to sail across the Arctic Sea uh, year-round. Now, it isn't quite there yet. It's still the case that you can only transit the, the Arctic waters, unless you have a, a huge icebreaker, but you can only transit those waters about four to five months a year, some months, six months a year. Uh, but that's changing, and within a foreseeable future, 15 years, it's going to be possible to transit those waters year-round. Now, if you think about it from a trade perspective, the difference, the distance between Shanghai and New York, if you can sail the Arctic route, is about half the distance if you have to go through the Suez Canal, across the Mediterranean, and then across the, the Atlantic Ocean. So it has the potential to dramatically uh, cut 
trade times um, with dramatic uh, savings. It was similar in, in nature to what the Suez Canal did to trade between Asia and Europe when it was first uh, established. It has the potential to be a major uh, change in global commercial routes. That's one. There's two, uh, with warming waters, it's more easy to access the energy reserves that are underneath the, the, the Arctic Sea on the continental shelf off the coast of Russia, which are huge. Uh, the largest gas find in the world recently was in those in those waters, in Russian uh, waters in the Arctic Sea and the Barents Sea. Uh, so there are huge commercial stakes there are huge energy stakes, there are huge fishing stakes, um, and of course, there are strategic stakes. This is where Russia now has the largest concentration of its naval power. Uh, the United States has begun to return nuclear submarines to the Arctic for the first time since the end of the Cold War. Uh, China is deploying repeated scientific missions, which are you know, frequently dual use. Um, and so this is really becoming a zone of uh, tense uh, military buildup. And Bruce, I want to get to the strategic part, but going from the commercial side, in 2018, China announced their plans for a polar silk road, basically a network of Arctic shipping routes. So how would that change kind of the geopolitics of the region if that were to succeed? Yeah, well, this is, it, it, and it can't happen yet. You know, China's laying the groundwork for it now. It's, it's as I said, a, a decade or so down the road when the waters will be ice-free year-round. Um, but it would dramatically shorten trade times and allow China to further consolidate its already overwhelmingly large presence in global uh, commerce. Uh, just to give your listeners one measure, one indication, you know, the largest port in the United States now is Los Angeles, Long Beach. We've all seen of late uh, sort of pictures of container ships stacked up trying to get in, etc. Uh, LA, Long Beach processes about 9 million container drops a year. That's moving those large containers on and off, those huge container ships. Uh, Shanghai does 42 million a year, and the four largest ports in the world after Shanghai are all Chinese. So it just gives you a flavor of how large China looms in global commercial trade uh, and ocean-based shipping, which is you know everything we produce and everything we consume ends up in that system at one point or another. So they just play a huge role, and they're looking to continue that, looking to continue their their dominance in ocean-based commerce and the polar trade route. If they can succeed in establishing it, uh, will will do that for them. And staying in that vein, it seems you mentioned in the book that uh, Russia has quite a big presence in the Arctic. They also send a lot of gas to China through that. But Russia has been militarizing the seas. So how has Russia been doing that? It seems on land you would see soldiers stationed. But how do you militarize the ocean? Well, uh, through the naval presence in its northern bases, and it has uh, an important base in Murmansk in the north, uh, opening up onto the uh, opening up onto the uh, Arctic Sea. It's been building up its so-called northern fleet. Russia has five fleets historically. The northern fleet is now one of the larger ones. It's been moving resources up into those into that base. It's been patrolling and exercising out across the Arctic Sea, the Norwegian Sea, and down into the North Atlantic. It's declared large swaths of those waters, including waters that are actually in Norwegian territory, to be sort of part of its self-defense zone. That's, that's pretty controversial, pretty provocative. Um, it sails nuclear submarines in and out of those waters into the North Atlantic. It's the closest route, obviously, to you know, if you want, if you're Russia and you want to put a nuclear submarine off the coast of the United States, it comes down through 
the Arctic waters through the what's called the Giuk Pass, which is the Greenland, Iceland, UK pass. It's a channel of water that separates those those countries. Uh, so for for Russia, it's a very important route to the North Atlantic and to threaten the United States. And on that note, so it seems China's benefiting from this gas that Russian supplies them, but China doesn't seem to like this militarization of the seas. As you mentioned in the book, there's a lot of commercial aspects if this Arctic route opens up. So I'm curious, though, would that only benefit China shipping, or if the U.S. were also to commercialize that area, would that benefit us? How does that work? Yeah, it's this funny thing about modern commerce, right? Because, of course, like, you know, as has been true for the last 30 or 40 years, uh, global trade is such that when we are growing, so are the Chinese and vice versa. It's, uh, um, you know, the expansion of that trade route would be very beneficial for us, would be very beneficial for them, would be beneficial for the Europeans. Um, so there is this sort of dual logic at play. At the one hand, we're militarizing the Arctic, and the Chinese are, are militarizing too. They don't have the same reach that the Chinese, that the Russians do but they're certainly interested in the military and strategic dimensions of the Arctic. Um, uh, and at the same time, we're developing it commercially and, and, and we operate the same way. Look, we're, we devote huge amounts of our resources to protecting the flow of commerce in the Western Pacific, the primary beneficiary of which is China, which is now our largest rival. And so this is very odd dual kind of contradictory logic between the trade global trade regime that we all work in and the mounting geopolitical tensions and naval tensions that are the, the reality of our time. And part of the point I'm trying to make in the book is that we are we are underestimating the scale of contradiction between the geopolitical world that is emerging on the one hand and the continuing realities of globalization and global issues that, that don't go away just because we have a new geopolitical uh, competition. We're still trade dependent on the Chinese, they're still financially dependent on us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those realities don't change just because we now have these geopolitical tensions. And I worry that we are underestimating the contradiction between those and not adequately preparing for the costs and consequence of what I think is likely to be uh, increasing militarized competition and potentially clashes between ourselves and the Chinese, especially in the Western Pacific, but also potentially the Arctic. That was Bruce Jones, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and author of To Rule the Waves, How Control of the World's Oceans Shapes the Fate of Superpowers. And after a break, we hear more from him on how the U.S., Russia, and China are eyeing the Arctic, how the tensions there reflect into the wider world, and what steps need to be taken now to counter rising trends. That's coming up in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Next, we hear more from Bruce Jones, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and author of To Rule the Waves, How Control of the World's Oceans Shapes the Fate of the Superpowers. He sheds light on how the U.S., Russia, and China are eyeing the Arctic, how the tensions there reflect into the wider world, and what steps need to be taken now to counter rising trends. Let's dive in. 
And on that note, you mentioned, Bruce, in your book how tensions between Russia and China just in the Arctic region have been going up. And it seems the U.S. is paying more attention to that area, too, because the U.S. White House recently announced they have a plan to nominate an ambassador at large for the Arctic. So they do seem to be focusing more on that area. So going forward, how do you see these three powers really playing out in that area? I, I know that the United States hopes to continue to exploit what are important differences and interests between the Chinese and the Russians in the Arctic. Uh, they have some aligned interests. Their energy interests are aligned, for example. And they have some different interests, uh, which are essentially a matter of prestige and position. Russia has been the far more important power in the Arctic relative to China, which hasn't been a player in the Arctic at all until very recently. So Russia is sort of suspicious and leery of China gaining too much of a foothold. Uh, on the other hand, I think what we've seen in other parts of the world and we're starting to see in the Arctic is that for both China and Russia, the overarching interest that they have in weakening the West and weakening NATO and weakening the United States is sufficiently large to cause them both to try to sort of put their differences of interests to one side uh, and see greater complementarity in their in their own uh, interests. They'll come back to competing with each other later. But for now, they have this much, much bigger fish to fry, which is to try to weaken the West, to, to weaken the United States. Uh, and I think we're starting to see that in the Arctic as well, where China is no longer really concerned about China's militarization of those waters. Uh, you see Russia-Chinese cooperation in the scientific domain. Uh, there's still some continuing international collaboration there. We still have the Arctic Council. There are still joint scientific missions. Uh, fisheries are still relatively open. Uh, but I think the trend line is such that we'll see increasing tensions, uh, increasing militarization. As you mentioned, in the United States appointing an ambassador is a signal of interest. There's also increasing interest in uh, Northern Command and in the U.S. Department of Defense more generally about the capabilities that are available in the Arctic and what needs to be there in the Arctic. Um, so we'll, I, I think we will see tensions continuing to rise uh, between the United States, uh, its allies on the one hand, uh, and Russia and China on the other. And given that, it seems in terms of, say, militarization, right, the Arctic would be a much closer springboard to hit, say, North America, for instance. So given that proximity, what can the U.S. do then to really counter this growing threat, especially if Russia and China were to partner together against us? Look, this is, you know, one part of a much wider mix of, of issues where we are worried about the adequacy of our defenses against long-range missile strikes, for example. We've had a large investment in ballistic missile defense, which it seems like Chinese technologies may be now outstripping. Um, the relative distance is not the critical factor. Maneuverability and unpredictability are the critical factors. Um, submarine positioning uh, is a big issue coming out of the Arctic into the North Atlantic. If you can kind of position and station your submarines for a long period of time in the Arctic and be you know, well positioned to, to maneuver in the North Atlantic, that's quite a, a key advantage. Uh, China is not really in a position to do that yet, but might be soon, and collaboration with the Russians would certainly help. The Russians are already in a position to do that. Um, and this is simply one part of the wider problem that we're going to have in defending against the combination of naval and long-range strike power that both China and Russia 
have in substantial measure. Um, the Russian capabilities are so far slightly more sophisticated than the Chinese, uh, but the Chinese are more numerous and rapidly catching up and in some places surpassing Russian technology. Um, so these are going to be issues of ballistic missile defense. They're going to be issues of submarine tracking. They're going to be issues of naval warfare. Um, those are the major areas where we're going to have to be worried about Russian and Chinese capabilities. And given this continued growth in this direction, it seems, is there anything either the U.S. or other world powers can do now to reverse that, or are we just stuck on this track? Well, I think for now we're stuck on this track, and it's really a deterrence question. It's about continuing to build our own capabilities at a pace such that, and, and to invest in the technologies such that China and Russia, and especially a combined China and Russia, still recognize that the United States, in particular, the West more generally, still has superior capabilities and is therefore uh, dissuaded and deterred from using their military capabilities. Of course, we continue to invest and can continue to invest in diplomacy and in other means to try to reduce tensions between us. But in the short term, I don't think those are likely to take us very far. Uh, China is now a very well-developed power. It has clear interests. It's going after them. They're at odds with ours. We're going to defend them. Um, there's not a ton of space for diplomacy to change those equations. It's really, a, in my mind, in the short term, it's really a hard power question. Now, the one place I would make an exception to that is I think there's a crucial need for diplomatic uh, investment in sort of emergency crisis management measures. You know, we might bump into a Chinese submarine or they might bump into one of ours and tensions could escalate very rapidly, even if neither side are actually deliberately looking for a for a conflict, and we don't right now have the uh, crisis management mechanisms. In fact, China recently suspended what few there were over the Nancy Pelosi visit to Taiwan, but they were very mediocre in any case, very slender in any case. If you think about the kind of crisis management mechanisms that we and the Soviets had during the Cold War, we don't have anything remotely like that uh, now with the Chinese. So if there's an accident or a kind of unintended uh, situation, it could escalate very rapidly and we don't really have the tools to to get things back in the box to de-escalate. So that's a, that's a, a crucial area for investment in what I call guardrails, uh, to put some guardrails around the, the relationship and invest in that. Uh, both sides recognize, or certainly the United States has recognized the need to do so. China has sort of semi-recognized that, but right now that's not happening. And Bruce, it seems in your book you point out the three main areas that the seas really bring to light, right? There's the military strategic part, there's the commercial or trade or say fish, and then there's also climate or the environment, right? So going forward, especially as all these tensions rise among world powers or in any of these domains, what can the U.S. really do going forward? Because it seems in some ways we're cutting our Navy, but then we're also in talks of potentially not. So what is the U.S. doing? Yeah, I mean, in fairness, we're not cutting our Navy. We've increased it a little bit of, of late. Um, I just think that most people recognize that we haven't increased it nearly enough. Uh, and the Chief of Naval Operations recently issued a, a, a planning report calling for a 600-fleet Navy that's divided between a manned fleet and an unmanned fleet. Uh, that's probably the right architecture. Um, but we have not seen 
kind of seriousness of purpose in Congress to authorize the funding necessary for that. We haven't seen Congress or the DOD being willing to recognize that that requires moving some money out of some of the other services. Look, to my mind, the central geopolitical fact of our time uh, is that the world's two most important powers are separated by 6,000 miles of ocean that we both want to contest and dominate. other services may get grumpy if I say this, but the reality is that naval power will be a central part of competition between ourselves and the Chinese for, for years and years to come. So getting much more serious than we have been about shipbuilding, that's both a budgetary question, it's about investing in shipyards in the United States or forging long-term deals with shipyards of, of key allies who might be able to build them faster or cheaper than we can. Uh, there's a whole host of things that go into having and sustaining uh, a large-scale global blue water navy. Same is true for for Europe, which has underinvested in its navy in the last in the last decades. Um, the second thing I would say is that the United States has been and remains the world's ocean sciences superpower, bar none. Uh, vastly, we are the source of ocean sciences research and knowledge. China is rapidly building up its capability. That's fine. It can can and should continue to do so, but we should not lag behind. We should invest uh, heavily in our ocean sciences capability. It is dual use. It's the most important science for understanding climate change, um, but it's also necessary for understanding the dynamics of submarine warfare, of, of uh, naval warfare, etc. And so the ocean sciences are a crucially important domain. Uh, we have a, a substantial lead in that space, but we should work hard at maintaining it. And Bruce, any last words you'd like to add? I just always want to highlight to people that although we rarely think much about the oceans other than, you know, if I would like to go to the beach for uh, a vacation, it is striking to me how much of our lives are shaped by transactions on or below the ocean surface. 85% of global trade, 93% of all data moving by sea, and the oceans are the literal weather vane of our changing climate. They are how uh, a changing climate is turning into changing weather. and some cases very severely. Um, so as a as a race, we need to be, as a species, we need to be paying much, much more attention to, to the oceans. Uh, in every national context, we need to be paying a lot more attention to what we gain from ocean-based trade, what's at risk, uh, why it matters to sustain naval power, um, and how to protect vital resources like fish stocks, undersea cables, et cetera, which are increasingly threatened. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. That was Bruce Jones, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and author of To Rule the Waves, How Control of the World's Oceans Shapes the Fate of the Superpowers. Thanks for watching China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer, and see you soon.